0: Well, we've been spending a lot of time in Joshua and we're now going into this this new series on Ephesians. And you know, some people may ask, why do you guys uh, preach through an entire book? And my question, I mean, my answer is a question, why don't you? How can you really understand the Bible if you're just taking little pieces here and there? We want to understand the Bible in the context, not take it out and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. So... You know, occasionally we'll take little field trips to different parts of the Bible. But for the most part, when we start a book, we're gonna finish it. We're gonna go through the whole thing because it was meant to be read together. This is a letter. And um, it was a letter that wasn't meant to be cut up into pieces and just take out our favorite parts. And the title of it is The Great Mystery. The Great Mystery. And you know, the thing about mystery and how it's being used here is kind of interesting. We'll talk more about that later. And when you actually hear what the mystery is, you, you might actually be a little bit um, not so excited about it. And the reason is, it's because we've been living with the results of this mystery for 2,000 years. However, I will tell you, there's a reason that you should get excited about it because we haven't been doing it well. You might go, well, you know, I haven't been here for 2,000 years. Well, yeah, but for the time you've been here, for the time I've been here, even though this great mystery was revealed to us 2,000 years ago, we're still not doing it well. I have a couple of slides and see if you guys know who these people are and these things are. Anybody know who this is? Amelia Earhart. And what is she known for? First woman, I I think first person to fly across the Pacific, right? Yeah, first. Um, By the way, how many of you have flown across the Pacific? Okay, just checking. All right. Um, But back then, she was the first. Anybody have one of these when I went to school? Had the Pan Am bag? Everybody uh, you know, younger than 40 probably don't know what this is. But Pan Am. You know what Pan Am was known for, famous for in Hawaii? 1935? First commercial flight to Hawaii. First commercial flight. It was a big deal. Pan Am's not even in existence anymore. Um, a lot of younger people probably don't even know that Pan Am was an airline. How about this one? You know who that is? That's Chuck Yeager. you know what Chuck Yeager did? First guy to break the sound barrier. Wow, first guy back in 1947 or 48, something back in the 40s. Pretty amazing, first guy. How about this? Lance Armstrong's dad, Neil? Nope, not related. Uh, this Neil Armstrong, what was he known for? First one to Set foot on the moon, right? First human being. And then, you know what that is? 1977, the first home computer. Pretty sleek, huh? Anybody want one of those in your house? First home computer. Probably had a whopping two megabytes or something. I don't know. And then, how about that? Oh yeah, the brick first cell phone. We Cheryl, actually had one of these back in the, they came out in the 70s, but didn't really get popular until the 80s and early 90s. And so, yeah, and the thing was like this big. So it would not fit in your pocket unless you had ginormous pockets. You know, when, when things first come out, we get so excited about them. Like the cell phone, everybody's like, oh, you can call from your car, you can walk anywhere and call and all this other stuff. And you get so excited about it. But then, after a while, it becomes so common, becomes such a part of our lives that we don't even think about it anymore. And that's why when I, when I thought about this series that we have, this great mystery, it's great mystery has been such a part of our lives, and especially if you're a Christian, it's been such a part of your life that as long as you remember, this, has been this, this is how it is. So why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? We get used to it. We get used to traveling across the ocean. It's not a big deal. But it was a big deal when it first came out. Because it had never been done. The great mystery. The great mystery was radical. Was radical 2,000 years ago. But it's common today. It's common in our understanding. But not in our practice. And Ephesians reveals this great mystery. And what it tells us, it tells us what a healthy church is. It tells us that a healthy church, it tells us what a healthy church um, believes, it tells us what a healthy church looks like, it tells us what a healthy church does. So Ephesians is such an important letter because it's, you would hope when you hold it up that it's a mirror, it's a reflection of who we are. You would hope that when it's held up, you don't go, who's that? Never seen anything like that person, but it tells us it tells us what a good church is. So today we're just going to look at the first few verses of the first chapter and 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 I thought to introduce the sermon today I wanted um, i I thought of some some romantic things you can say. Uh, to your significant other. So if your spouse or your significant other is here, you can kind of look to them and you can say these words. So you can repeat after me. You were not my first choice. <laughs> but I'm still glad I married you. <laughs> Pretty romantic, huh? No. We, even if we think that, even if that were true, we probably wouldn't say it. Not my first choice. Sometimes when people think about God and they think about Christianity and they think about the church, they, they have this idea that God created a perfect world and he expected it to go perfectly. And then it didn't go perfectly. So then God went, oh, no, what am I going to do? And then Jesus comes along and says, um, God, I, you know, Father, I can help you. Oh, let's get a new plan. I got a new plan. Plan B. Plan A didn't work. That's the idea some people have about Christianity. It's the wrong idea, it's the wrong idea. We're not plan B, it was the plan all along. And we're gonna read about that today. Because God had a purpose, he had a reason for doing what he did and the way that he did it. And ultimately he's, He's helping the world confront this issue that it has. The issue that the world has is that on a certain level, the world knows it needs unity. It knows it needs unity. It knows like if it's to survive, you need unity. Even animals that travel in packs know you need unity because they know the predator's looking for the, the one that gets separated from the pack. We know we need unity but we also fight against unity. Because unity threatens our individuality. To be united, it means I have to make compromises and I have to give up things that I might wanna do or you know, ways that I think things should be done. And so we have this, this terrible love-hate relationship with unity, we know we need it, and so some days we're all about unity, and other days, no. We just wanna be left alone. We just wanna live our lives without anyone around. So we fight against it. In fact, our culture, especially our American culture, we can see our American culture, we can see it playing out. On one hand, the, the, the culture, especially our younger generations are saying, you older generations, you were not united. You had a fake unity because you kind of just lied about the things about racism and everything. We want real unity. And at the same time they're saying this, they're spending 90% of their day with their headphones on. They, they, can, they can ride on an hour-long bus ride and never talk to each other, but they want unity. So we see it with them, we see it with us, doesn't matter, we see it in our culture. This, this desire for unity and then this hatred, this fighting against it, this wanting to be an individual. So Paul, here's Paul writing this letter 2,000 years ago. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus and this is his favorite church. I fully believe that if, God, if Paul felt that God told him, look, your missionary days are over, just retire, he would have retired to Ephesus. He loved Ephesus, he stayed there for three years. That's a long time for Paul. A lot of times he's just stayed in a place for a few weeks. Three years. He loved this place so much that in the book of Acts it says when he he left and then he had to go back and he had to go to Jerusalem and he had to go by Ephesus. He loved it so much and they loved him so much that he intentionally tried to avoid going there. Because he knew if he went there that they would compel him to stay and he would want to stay. But he knew he had to go to Jerusalem. That's how much he... He loved them. In fact, he loved them so much that if in all of his other letters, Paul says, um, say hello to these people for me at the church at Corinth or at the church at Rome. But he doesn't do it at Ephesus. And you know why? Because he knew everybody. He would have to say, say hello to, you know, 100 people, 200 people, who knows how many people. And the church at Ephesus just got it right. Of course, they had the the benefit of having Paul for three years helping them, but they just got it right. In fact, they got it so right. They got it so right that the reason Paul ended up having to leave was that so many people in Ephesus were either becoming Christians or or were being influenced by the Christians that they stopped worshiping the idols. And when they stopped worshiping the idols, they stopped buying the little idols little false gods. They stopped buying them. And when they stopped buying them, the guys who made them and the silversmiths who made them and the people who supplied the silver, it was hurting their economy. And so when they stopped buying, the silversmiths rioted. They wanted to get rid of this people, not because they were Christians, but because they were affecting their business and so Paul leaves he leaves just for to help keep the peace. Mrs Paul he loves this church. And so he's writing to them. And he's writing to them and I think he's doing it for two reasons. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ. And he's reminding them of how then they should live. You see, a lot of people just want one or the other. They want to have the right beliefs about God. You know, I'll believe in the Trinity, I'll believe in Jesus, I'll believe in the resurrection, I'll believe in the cross. But they don't want it to affect their lives at all. So you have that group. And then you have other people that say, I just want to do all the good things that the Bible says. And I'll kind of pick and choose which ones I want and how. But I don't really want to believe those things. Paul says, no, you cannot have either or. If you're truly a Christian, you have right beliefs that lead to right actions. You have right beliefs that lead to right attitudes, right motivations, a right heart. And so that's what he's telling them. So Ephesians chapter one, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul writes this letter and he starts his letter like he always does. He starts with a greeting and then he starts with this, this kind of a prologue where he, he, he kind of does a combination of a doxology, a praise to God, and then he's kind of setting up what he's gonna write about in the letter. Paul rarely writes anything just to write it. He writes it because he has a purpose behind it. And so there's a lot of words. In fact, um, somewhere around verse three, all the way down to verse 10 in the original Greek, that's one sentence. That's one really long, complicated sentence. Some English versions try to keep it as one sentence, and some just give up make it two or three sentences. It is a long sentence. And that means that Paul intends for that all to be kept together. You can't just go and pick and choose parts out of that that you want to emphasize. That he intends for it all to be together. And so he's writing here to the saints in Ephesus. Saints, by the way, the The biblical way of using the word saints is not for special holy people. Saints is for all believers. If you're a believer, you're a saint, according to the way Paul uses that word. And he he says, you know, after he says the grace to them, he tells them something. In verse four, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, you, church at Ephesus, you have always been a part of God's plan. Always. It's not new. God's not making it up as He goes. From before the foundations of the world. Crazy. Crazy when you think about it. It's crazy because on one hand, you know, the Bible kind of rightfully kind of presents us human beings as these wretches. We don't like to use that word, it's not so politically correct anymore, but that's the idea that we're wretches. But then, the Bible also tells us that for some reason, God treasures us. That for some reason, that before the foundations of the world, he was thinking of us. Not just before we were born, not just before we were conceived, but before the world was even created, you were in his mind. I don't know. I don't know how that makes you feel. But it should make you feel pretty good. It should make you see that we're not just kind of jumping on the plan. We're just trying to say, well, let's get as close to God's people as possible. That on a certain level it should tell us that, no, that even this moment, even this church, Wiley Baptist Church, and all of you who make up Wiley Baptist Church, you were in his mind before the foundation of the world. You know, I think if we as Christians took hold of this more, if we understood this more, we would take more seriously what it means to be part of the body of Christ. And we wouldn't engage in, in kind of what's happened in, in American culture for maybe the last 30, 40, 50 years, where people change churches like they change their shoes. Or living in Hawaii, their slippers, Okay. It's like, oh, you know, I like this church for a while and then, and then I go to this other church and you know, I like the music over here and I go to this other place and I like the pastor for a little while and then I found this other guy. Just change churches like we change our shoes. But if you actually believe that God called you to be part of the body of Christ at this place and that was in his plan, Do you think in his plan was something like, here's my plan, that people would just jump in and out of churches whenever they got a little upset or whenever they got tired or bored or didn't feel they were being fed or... Do you think people would do that? Do you think that would be part of God's plan? That people would just jump in and out of churches I don't think so. I think if we understood that what transpires is something that God's planned from before the foundation of the world, that he wanted the church, that he predestined the church. Different attitude we have towards the church. Different attitude we have towards what we're doing here and why we're here and our commitment to one another. Because look at what he says, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Wow. He's predestined us so that we would be holy and blameless before him. You see, we cannot be holy and blameless if we're, if we're staying together as a, as a church that, that, you know, different people have different grudges about, against other people. Every grudge you have about someone else, everything that you feel like you've been slighted and hasn't been forgiven, it weakens the church. And you think, well, that's just me. I'm the only one with one of these, and it's not that big, Right? That's what people think. When we lived in Texas, um, Texas has a horrible problem where we live with, with um, foundations shifting, like their houses. And there's a, to the point where sometimes you, the foundation can shift so much that, that the slab cracks. And when it cracks, it's, it may be more money to fix the foundation than it does to to, to buy a new house. But you see, when this, this, it's not like you go to sleep one day and then you wake up the next day and there's this big crack in your floor, right? Little cracks here and there. Little cracks, little cracks. Slowly get bigger. Slowly your walls shift. Pretty soon. It's a problem that can't be fixed. Before the foundations of the world, God called us, he predestined us, and he predestined us not just to be together, but that we would be holy and blameless. It's not just a future thing. It's a now thing. Church has always been in God's plan. That should give us great comfort. That should give us encouragement. That should give us hope. But it should also ask us, make us ask this question, what is the plan? Because I want to do that plan. And we know part of the plan is that we're holy and blameless. Well, the second thing we find in this text Two little words at the end of verse four and the the, the sentence that actually goes into verse five. I have no idea why they put the verse number between these words. But it says, in love, he predestined us. We're not plan B, we're plan A, and the plan is motivated by God's love. It's not motivated by God's wrath. It's not motivated by God's vengeance. It's not motivated by God's boredom, his desire for something different. It's motivated by his love, his love. In love, he predestined us, in love. And we're predestined for adoption to himself, as sons through Jesus Christ. Get that. In love, he predestines you to be adopted into his family. You see this thinking out there that sometimes in our culture that we're all God's children. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach all human beings are God's children. Not in this sense. Oh, you're all God's children in the sense that God created. But being God's children in terms of being sons and daughters of God, sons and daughters who've been adopted into his family, no. It's only for the church. It's a church that was predestined in love to be adopted. Again, That's something that should make us go, wow, that is incredible, that is awesome. That is wonderful, but it's also overwhelming. That God would would love, and it shows the incredible power of His love because from God's perspective, there's nothing in us worth loving, yet He loves. You see, most of our human love It only is directed to things that somehow we we get something from. There's some value in loving. Even if it's the value of just, I'm doing it because it makes me feel good. I'm doing it because there's, there's something about that person, there's potential, or I feel sorry for them. It's not the reason God loves. God doesn't need us, and yet he loves us. It's amazing. God doesn't love us because he sees potential in us. He loves us so that he gives potential to us. Pretty amazing. We're not plan B, we're plan A. And that plan is motivated by his love. And we see in verse seven, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. We have redemption. He loves us. It's his plan, he predestined. And then he provides redemption through his blood. He provides forgiveness for our trespasses. And I love the word where it says, he lavishes it upon us. He doesn't just ration it out. He lavishes this upon us. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be living as, as, as feeling like we're like secondary children in the house of God. We shouldn't be walking around this world thinking like we, we, we don't belong there You do belong there. You you are a child of the king, and you should live as a child of the king. You should live as one who's had love and grace and forgiveness poured out on you. Not as though you don't know what this is, I never played this game, but I always thought it would be a fun game to play when I used to teach at HBA, and it was a game of, um, you know, we, we were, It would only be teachers playing the game, but we would say, "Guess what kind of parents these kids have." That would be the game, right? So, <laughs> you know, some teachers might actually play this game. If you do, please don't tell children or parents. But, but it's like. And, and you know, I would sometimes play it in my head, but it wasn't a game. It was a way to try to help understand the kids. You know that the girl that always needs attention. Why? Why does she always need attention? The boy who just just can't, you know, just won't doesn't want to be told what to do. Can be the dumbest thing. They get upset. They feel that they're being told what to do. Huge problem with authority, why? And it's not always a perfect picture, you know? Sometimes I would meet the parents and the parents are like wonderful people. And I'm like, I didn't ask them, but how'd you get this kid? But I wanted to, I wanted to, right? And sometimes the kid's wonderful and then the parents were terrible and you're like, how'd this happen? I'm not sure. But usually there's a pattern. But if people met you, if people met you, people who didn't know you, they met you and they hung out with you for a while and they knew that you were a Christian and they had to guess what kind of God you had, what do you think they would say? Would it be a God who pours out love and grace and forgiveness on people? Or would it be a judgmental God, a cynical God, a pessimistic God, a God that sits around and gossips? What kind of God would they guess? A God that that just tells you how terrible you are all the time, and so you just walk around feeling negative about yourself and low self-esteem. Or would they guess a God who loves you so much that no matter how much you think you can do, he promises you that if you trust him, You can do so much more. What kind of God would people guess that you love and that you serve and who you call Abba Father? God's plan, it's motivated by His love. In verse 10, it says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And this is something we're not going to unpack here, but let me just tell you real quickly. It means this. His plan is not just for human beings. His plan is not just for the church. His plan is for all of creation. I don't know how he's going to do it, but somehow through Jesus Christ and through us, God is going to renew all of creation. We get to be a part of it. We get to not just watch, we get to help. Even though God doesn't really need our help, He wants it. His plan, and I think we forget this. I think we were, we were sold a Christianity for about 50 to 100 years, a Christianity in America that was, his plan was simply to give you a better life. That his plan was simply so that you could go through life happy, so that you could go through life with good health, so that you could go through life and have good morals. And that was the Christianity that has been sold to Christians in America for at least 100 years. It is not what the Bible teaches us. God's plan is so much more than you having a good life. That's part of it. But his plan is the renewal of creation, of the entire world, and not just that, a world that hates him. A world that hates its creator, rejects its creator. God's going to renew it. And he, want his, he wants his people, his church, to be on the front lines doing it. And I'm going to tell you, don't sign up. Don't sign up. If you're not, if you don't, if you think you're just going to get in and, and just kind of sit back. Christianity is about being on the front lines. Christianity is joining the side that the world opposes. I remember when, when um, uh, the Iraq War, the second one, broke out. And I remember that, that they suddenly needed to mo- uh, mobilize these units of reserves. And, and a lot of these were, were people that are in their 20s and early 30s that had just joined the reserves just so they could get a college scholarship. And I'm like... Really? You never thought in your mind that you're joined, they're, they're training you to use a gun. Why do you think that was for? Personal edification. But you would hear people go, this isn't what I signed up for. I signed up for college. And now I have to go to war. I'm just gonna tell you, Jesus warned us about this 2000 years ago. He said I didn't come to bring peace not in the way you're thinking oh I'm the prince of peace and I will bring peace but before peace ever gets here it's going to be brother against brother it's going to be a world that hates me and because it hates me it will hate you it's more than that it's more than just us His plan involves all of creation. And here's the other thing that I love about this verse. I mean, this passage in verse 13, he gives us evidence. He doesn't just leave us alone, he gives us evidence. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. You wanna know if you're a Christian? You wanna know if you're really a Christian? It's not because you can tell me that you remember a day when you prayed a prayer. It's not because you can tell me that you were baptized. It doesn't make you a Christian. Yes, baptism is part of being a Christian. Yes, a profession of faith is part of being a Christian. But do you really wanna know Do you know anything in your life, anything that you think, anything that you've done, that you know is there, not because it's you, but because the Holy Spirit put it in your life? Do you know the inner workings of the Holy Spirit in your life? If you do, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about every day having another voice in your head telling you what to do. I'm not talking about when you pray you hear a voice that says, hi there, here's some things you need to work on. No, I'm talking about when you do something, when you think something, you wonder how did I get there? And sometimes what's really hard about this, so don't feel bad if you can't think of anything. What's really hard about this is because if you actually do it and it's really the Holy Spirit, you really don't think about it because it's just who you are. A lot of times it takes someone else coming up and saying, wow, you handled that well. That person was coming at you and you handled that well and you realize that wasn't you you realize at that moment you wish you could go get them back and tell them what you really think. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit gave you an answer. The Holy Spirit gave you an attitude. Gave you insights and thoughts. Is there evidence? Is there evidence? And again, this isn't about becoming perfect. The Holy Spirit in our lives doesn't suddenly make us all perfect, but the Holy Spirit nudges us and pushes us and draws us to becoming more like Christ. You know, you may be, if I just meet you or you just meet me, you know, you might look at me and think, you're so unforgiving. But if you met me like 10 years ago and then you saw me today, you go, wow, you're so much more patient than you used to be. Right, We don't know. We don't know. I don't know where you are in your journey, but you know. You know that in all of your years walking with Christ, are the fruit of the Spirit more in your life, less or the same? Are you more loving? Are you kinder? Are you gentler? Are you more forgiving? Are you more humble? Fruit of the Spirit, it's not just a cool list that we have in the Bible. Tells us the evidence of the Spirit in our lives, and is that growing? The Holy Spirit, He's our seal, He's the evidence. And we go, all right, I get it. This isn't who I would be if it were not for Christ in my life and for His Spirit. changing me. So what does a good church believe? I told you that Ephesians is about a good church, what a good church believes. So What a good church believes is that we're chosen by God. We're not plan B. This has been in his mind from before the foundations of the world. To us, it seems just like life and just a series of events that have happened. But to God, it is something that he's always known. Second, that we're, we're part of his plan for all creation and not just a part, an important part and not important because we're important, important because God has decided we're important. He's not just saying you're important, he's made us important. And third, We've been sealed by the Spirit. There's evidence, not just in our individual lives of the Holy Spirit changing us, but there's evidence in our church as a whole. I've only been here for a little more than two and a half years, so so I can only look back that far. Some of you have been here longer, but the question is the same as it is about you. Is Wylai Baptist Church, does it show evidence of the Holy Spirit? Is it more forgiving? Is it more loving? Is it kinder? Is it more humble? Is it gentler? If it is, that's the evidence. That's the seal. And I, far be it from me to to speak you know any kind of judgment because i only know what i know but that's the seal that's what a good church believes that's what a healthy church believes and that's what that's what i believe that's why i love what what ernie read earlier and what ernie read earlier from galatians is a is a hint it's a hint into what the great mystery is But it tells us that part of God's plan is to somehow use the church to advance his kingdom in this world. That's why we're here. We're not here just to show up. We're not here just to sing some songs or to serve together. We're here to change the world. That's what God's called us to do.